you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me once again uh, this morning to the Gospel of John, John chapter 4. We jump back into this account of the life of Jesus written by one of his closest followers. If you're visiting with us, uh, we've been working our way story by story, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this Gospel account. It's about the 10th week, I think, that we are picking apart. Could go a little faster, probably could go slower too, uh, but this seems to be a good pace for now. Uh, I want to remind you before I read the passage for this morning that John the Apostle's account here of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, it's intentional. It's not haphazard. And what I mean by that is through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which of course we believe was behind John's writing and retelling of what he heard and saw, John is, is painting a picture for his readers, both in the first century as well as us here today. He's painting for us a specific picture, a portrait through all these accounts and through all these encounters that he, that he chooses to include. And so what I mean is John's gospel is, nor any of the gospels, none of them are comprehensive concerning the life of Jesus. They pick what they want to include so that they can paint the picture they want. So it's not comprehensive, but it's true and it's accurate. And through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, it's exactly what we need. And I want us to remember that. And so today we come to another meeting, let's call it a meeting between Jesus and and a first century person, a member of that first century society. Two weeks ago, those of you who were here, remember that Jesus interacted with Nicodemus, who was a well-educated Pharisee who presumed that his religion was enough until Jesus exhorted him that that religiosity was nothing unless he was born again, unless he was looking to the Son for healing. That's when Jesus referred Nicodemus and all of our minds back to that story in Exodus when Moses lifted high the suffering symbol and people in judgment found healing as they looked at it. I remind you of that story of Nicodemus because today's encounter is meant to be seen in light of that one, though it's very different. It's meant to be seen almost as a counterbalance to the story and the encounter with Nicodemus. You see, we are all in one sense Nicodemus, some more than others. To varying degrees, we are all leaning on our goodness in order to save us, in order to give us standing with our Creator. But we are also the woman that we are about to read about. And that's what I want us to see this morning. Her story is quite lengthy, and so we're just going to look this morning at the first half of it, and next week we'll return to the second half of this encounter that Jesus has. So, Please stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. That's our tradition here at Ascension. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 19. Listen as I read. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, 
near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please go ahead and be seated. As I take a sip of my water, I remind you of thirst. Concept of of thirst. It's a powerful thing that I'm quite certain that few of us have really ever, ever experienced. Right in an age of water bottles and drinking fountains and clean water almost everywhere, we rarely experience deep thirst. Kind of comical in the news this week, a Texas lawmaker went on a thirst strike to draw attention to outdoor workers in his state. He lasted a whopping nine hours before he returned to water. Jesus' world, the world of the first century, was much different. In an arid climate with limited water sources, experiencing thirst and prioritizing finding clean water sources was much, much more common. And so Jesus seizes upon this reality to reveal both who He is as well as our need of Him. Now, we've encountered this metaphorical language before in the Gospel of of John, so just add it to the pile. We've looked at Jesus as the Word. We've looked at Jesus as the light. We've looked at Jesus as the Lamb of God. We've looked at Jesus as the true temple. And now we turn this morning to Jesus as the living water. Two simple truths that I want to encourage and challenge you with this morning in hopes that you will see Jesus, in hopes that you will see yourself. And the first is this. Simply put, Jesus is seeking the thirsty. 
Jesus is seeking the thirsty. Not the physically thirsty, though there may be some of that as well, but the spiritually thirsty. All of us are actively filling ourselves, and Jesus is after us. Let me explain what I mean. Let's first set the conversation in time and place. That's what verses 1 and 6 do for us. They both connect us with the story that has come before and they move us forward. And as we'll see, John will constantly keep us up to speed with the goings-on of the Pharisees, this group who is kind of in the wings, in the shadows, watching Jesus, and their disdain for Him will grow and grow and grow. And so Jesus intentionally moves away from that opposition. He moves away from the Pharisees. He moves away from much of the controversy in Jerusalem. And he heads to Galilee where things will quiet down a bit. And that's the first phrase that I want us to dig in. In verse 4, look at it there with me in your Bibles. It says, He had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. That's significant because he didn't have to, but it was necessary. He didn't have to, but it was necessary. In other words, it had purpose. You see, the normal route from Judea to Galilee was indeed through Samaria. That was the most direct route, but there were other ways, ways that were, while longer, would avoid Samaritan territory. And the fact of the matter is, a lot of Jews took that route in order to avoid Samaritan territory, to avoid the kind of interaction that Jesus sets Himself up for. Jesus is seeking the thirsty. So what was it about Samaria? Some of you know this, some of you don't. What was it about Samaria and its residents? Well, let's just say there's, there's a lot of history there. <laughs> the name Samaria comes from 1 Kings 16.24 when Israel had already split into northern and southern kingdoms and King Omri named the capital of the northern kingdom Samaria. And that name eventually came to be used as uh, covering the whole region, not just the capital city. And then in 722 BC, the Assyrians came and they conquered and deported the northern kingdom and most of the Israelites there, they, they carted them away and they replaced them with foreigners who brought in their foreign ways with their foreign gods. And over time, the Israelites that remained and the foreigners who had been brought in from Assyria began to mix. And the result was three things. Ethnically, you had half-breeds. Politically, you had children of rebels and enemies. And then religiously, you had this messy mixture between Yahweh worship and the worship of pagan gods. In fact, in 400 BC, they built a rival temple at Mount Gerizim, and we'll talk about that next week in the second half of this interaction. It becomes important. 
And so Jesus marches into the heart of this region not because He had to, but because He had to. Does that make sense? This was a divine appointment because Jesus is seeking the thirsty. And He comes to a well. We say, well, why does He come to a well? Well, first of all, because He's thirsty. Literally, He's thirsty. It's the sixth hour, which means it's about noon. The sun's been beaten down on Him. He's been walking. And the Apostle John, who focuses a whole lot in his account on the deity of Jesus, here gives us a wonderful glimpse of the humanity of Christ. He got tired. He got thirsty. He needed a drink of water. But secondly, this well and all wells have history because this situates Jesus within the larger story of redemption, within the larger map of biblical history. I mean, think about those of you who know the Old Testament, think about the well stories, right? Genesis 24, Abraham's servant on behalf of Isaac goes to a well to meet Rebekah. Genesis 29, Jacob meets Rachel at a well. Exodus 2, Moses meets Zipporah at a well. You see, God had, this is great, God had worked this soil before. And He's about to do it again. But this time, not for the the literal finding of a wife, for Jesus. That's not what's going on here. But for the inclusion into his bride. Capital B. Right? Jesus is after this woman, married five times because he's seeking the thirsty and he's seeking a bride. Capital B. The people of God. See, Jesus is about to show this woman her need for Him and He's about to do it by breaking through some pretty significant barriers. Showing the extent of His love and the extent of His seeking. First of all, she's a Samaritan. Right? I've already explained some of the history, some of the animosity that existed between these groups. Secondly, she's a woman. As many of you are aware of in the ancient world, in the Palestinian world, women did not have equal status. Something Jesus addresses more than once in His own ministry. And so social norms did not have men speaking with, in public with women that they did not know. Especially if you were a rabbi. For a normal rabbi, a conversation like what, had happened, what happened here would have been the end of his reputation. But Jesus doesn't care. So she's a Samaritan. She's a woman. And thirdly, she's a mess. She's broken. She's got issues. And Jesus, as He did with Nicodemus, He sees right through her. His first indication may have been the fact that she was all alone. Women normally didn't come to the wells by themselves, but in groups. It was likely that her shame 
and the societal shunning that she had already experienced as a result of her decisions demanded that she come alone. She's an outcast. She's a half-breed. She's a woman. She's everything that Nicodemus wasn't. We don't even know her name. But it's as if we're being reminded that the hospitality of God extends to everyone. To put it in more of a modern feel, think about our own country and our complicated history with race decades ago. This is essentially Jesus as if He were a white man in our world 50, 60, 75 years ago. And He's at a fountain that's labeled colored. And He asks a black woman who's at this fountain for a drink, but He doesn't have a water bottle. So He he needs to use her water bottle. That's what's going on here. But Jesus doesn't care. He cuts right through all of that cultural mess in order to extend the hospitality of God. Thinking about her in relationship to Nicodemus, one commentator said, no one can rise so high to be above salvation and no one can sink too low. That's good news. Because we're all on the spectrum. (laughs) Depending on what day it is, I suppose, we're all on the spectrum of whether we're just a mess, like the Samaritan woman feeling an outcast, or whether we're pretty prideful and feeling good about ourselves, like Nicodemus was. Before we get to the conversation that she had with him, let's pause for just a moment, I think, and And think about Jesus the evangelist. I think this is one of the real practical applications for us as we receive this word this morning. We're not Jesus. Hopefully you're acutely aware of that every single day. You're never going to be Jesus, but we can strive to be like Jesus. We can learn from our Savior. And so one of the challenges, I think, for us, for me, as I wrestle with this interaction is this. Would I have talked to her? Considering who she was, considering the reputation she had. As we'll see, Jesus knew her story already. It had been revealed to him. But would we have pressed in to know and to understand her? This church ascension has a wonderful reputation for being a friendly church. I've heard it again and again and again. And I love that about us. But are we a culture of grace? A place to be known and loved, whatever our mess? Are we a people who aren't afraid to really embrace and care for the broken and the outcast without judgment, without grace? I hope we are. Because at the end of the day, we're all just thirsty. (laughs) We're all just thirsty. And I had to ask myself as I wrestled with this passage, can I have compassion on others like Jesus did here? I confess that at times I lack 
Jesus' relational intentionality. I lack his compassion. I lack his ability to see behind people. And I focus too much on their externals. But Jesus came seeking the thirsty. And so should we. That's the first truth I want us to wrestle with this morning. The second is this. Living water is what you need. Living water is what you need, and I would add, and want. Living water is what you need and what you want. Just as Jesus confused Nicodemus with this born-again language a couple weeks ago, so he confuses this Samaritan woman with this metaphorical language of, of living water. And it begins with a, a polite command, we'll call it. Give me a drink. Now that sounds to our modern ears, it sounds a little bit rude, right? Give me a drink. Jesus is not being rude. He's tired. He's a rabbi. John makes a point of saying his disciples are not there because his students, his disciples, would have been the ones who would normally draw water for him. But he doesn't even have anything to drink because they've gone into town. But more than that, Jesus uses that request, give me a drink as a bridge. As a bridge to get at this woman's heart. She's, of course, surprised by the request. She knows all the taboos that he is breaking by being there, by opening his mouth towards her. And yet he basically says, you're about, even, you're about to be even more surprised. Living water is what I offer, Jesus says. The kind that quenches thirst forever. Of course, many of us know, all of us know, that what Jesus is talking about is Himself. Jesus is talking about salvation. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about the rest and the satisfaction that can only be found through the good news. Isaiah the prophet had spoken of this in Isaiah 12. With joy you will draw from the wells of salvation. In Isaiah 55, he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, incline your ear, and come to me that your soul may live. It was clear that this woman, after hearing about this, she wants this water, but she doesn't really know what she wants because she's still thinking on a materialistic plane. She's still not getting that Jesus is speaking metaphorically of Himself. So Jesus then takes the conversation from the eternal to the here and now. He gets personal. Real personal. And he calls out her relational searching. And we ask why. Why is he doing this? What Jesus is doing, what Jesus is saying, is you need to see how you've been seeking satisfaction in your own life. The fountain that you have consistently run to has left you dry. You need to see that before you can see me. Just like with Nicodemus, he sees through her, he loves her still, he exposes her darkness that she might run to his light, he shows her her need that she might drink from him. You see, this woman is chasing security and satisfaction and peace in the arms of men when she simply needs to look to this man. 
And in this, in this, she is all of us. She's all of us. We are seemingly satisfied, but we're not. We're thirsty and we're constantly running to counterfeits in order to attempt to quench that thirst. One of the verses we come back to again and again is from the prophet Jeremiah chapter 2 where the Lord says this about His people. They have forsaken Me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Listen to this quote from A.W. Pink about the human condition. He says, whether he articulates it or not, the natural man the world over is crying, I thirst. Why this consuming desire to acquire wealth? Why this craving for the honors of the world? Why this mad rush after pleasure? The turning of one form of it to another with persistent and unweary diligence. Why this eager search for wisdom? Why this insane craze for that which is novel? Why? Because there is an aching void in the soul over all the cisterns of the world. Over all the cisterns that this world's providing is written in letters, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. And that's the challenge to us, to me is what are we running to in order to be filled? What are your go-to cisterns that are constantly leaking? You see, at the heart of our sin is the belief that, that some cistern will bring more joy and greater life than God. It's at the heart of all of our sin. And that's why one pastor says that the battle we wage in our hearts is, is a fountain fight. It's a fountain fight. In this moment of temptation, in this moment of decision, what fountain will I believe will truly satisfy me? The way of Jesus or the way of the flesh? The lie that I've been told. Jesus reminds us that living water is what we all need. Living water is what we all want. And Jesus came to give it. And the Gospel proclaims that you and I don't have to thirst because Jesus did. Not just here at the well when He was obviously thirsty and asked the woman for a drink, but on the cross, as John will record in chapter 19 of this Gospel, Jesus cries out, I thirst! Just before He gives up His Spirit and dies for us. Jesus is seeking those who thirst that they might be filled in Him. So we too have to recognize that we're thirsty. That we, like the woman, are going to the wrong things. And Jesus offers all of Himself. I want to close with an excerpt of the revelation that was given to the Apostle John later in his life. A glimpse of the existence that awaits those who hide themselves in the sun. Revelation 7, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, 
The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. That is the eternal joy that it awaits us. That is the joy that we need to choose today and all of our days. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this woman and for this interaction between our Savior and her. Father, we confess, I confess, that too easily and too often, I believe the father of lies, I believe my own flesh, I believe the world, and I seek to fill myself with that which is empty with that which will keep me thirsty. Oh, Father, may we go from this place reminded of the good news, of the fact that Jesus thirsted, that we don't have to thirst, that Jesus offers Himself fully and freely, not just in a distant future, but today. May we go from this place filled with the living water that is Jesus recognizing our need to be filled. Oh, Father, would You do this that we in turn, as the Samaritan woman will do, that we in turn would tell others of the water that we found, of the thirst-quenching satisfaction that we have found in our Savior. Father, this I pray with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.